Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Guardians of the Galaxy's Longing for an Enchanted Universe by Krish Kandaya. The final instalment of director James Gunn's hugely popular Guardians of the Galaxy trilogy has hit the cinemas. This threequel, about a relatively obscure set of characters from the Marvel comic universe MCU, has been incredibly well received. It's set to outperform the first two films in the series as well as other MCU films like Iron Man and Captain America, widely known household names before their stories were transported from comic page to silver screen. I went to watch Guardians Volume 3 at the cinema on Coronation Weekend with my daughter and was struck by the relative ease with which it navigated cultural diversity. It offered a fascinating perspective on cultural inclusion and empowerment thanks to the radical diversity of its central characters. There's an orphan boy abducted and brought up by space pirates to become a master thief. There's a widower and a bereaved father whose family was massacred but has a gift for nurturing children despite his ferocity. There's also an abuse survivor rebuilt as a cyborg, a sentient teenage tree, an adopted empath with antennae and a genetically modified raccoon. These characters represent not simply different ethnicities, but wholly different species, plant, mammal, humanoid. None of them seem to be included for purposes of tokenism. Each brings essential skills or experience that make the team not only successful, but outstandingly so. At the Coronation concert from Windsor Castle, it was watched by 12.7 million people in the UK, the diversity on stage seemed more contrived. Despite moments of genuine beauty, dignity and pathos, the need to represent the four nations and the Commonwealth felt like it was motivated primarily by a desire not to offend, a tick-box exercise of inclusion, rather than a line-up that made coherent sense as an aesthetic whole. The Guardians are not just a performative or representational diversity, but a functional one. The unlikely heroes are drawn together through a vision bigger than themselves and are willing to risk their lives on numerous occasions to save the universe. They are the most unlikely synergistic team whose sum is far greater than any of its parts. This is not just idealism. The well-known McKinsey report showed the legitimate competitive advantage the diversity brings, promoting a breadth of cultures, gender and ages in the C-suite of major businesses. Diversity works. Diversity also sells. The movie industry is slowly waking up to the need of baking in diversity rather than simply waiting for the global markets to lap up the US leftovers. Films are now being made for a global audience from the beginning. The Marvel franchise are buying into this big time, with Black Panther and Shang-Chi tapping into the potential for black and Asian audiences to engage with the brand. Perhaps Marvel can do for diversity in the film industry what Spice Girls 
did for diversity in the music industry. The girl band was deliberately designed by marketeers with audience demographics, determining the very makeup of the group, which somehow managed to transcend its inception and help a generation of girls realise that there were many different ways to express femininity that broke traditional stereotypes and yet could harmonise. The Spice Girls showed that femininity could include ferocity, sporting ability, elegance and cuteness, and none was the lesser for it. Girl power was, in my opinion, a positive cultural contribution. It engendered acceptance. The Guardians trilogy speaks to our cultural longing for an enchanted universe, where we are not isolated bodies who happen to be coexisting in the coldness of space, but a place where we are known for who we really are and are loved and accepted despite our differences. Most of the Guardian's heroes begin life isolated, abandoned, rejected, betrayed or bereaved. During the course of the films, their social coldness thaws and they each find the warmth of fellowship, community and even family. The storyline is not a new one. Thousands of years ago, another Disparate group of outcasts were brought together on a mission to save the world. They were hunted down for their allegiance to that mission, but did not give up on their belief that God wanted to create a genuinely inclusive community where people of all abilities, genders and race could experience welcome as equals. Jesus Christ formed that original band of disciples and is now followed by millions Churches, at their best, are similarly diverse. Rich and poor, refugees and natives, old and young, male and female, and everything in between are united, not just by being in the same place at the same time, consuming religious services together, but by a purpose beyond them, seeking to share the boundary-breaking, radically welcoming love of God to all, without distinction, and to be the guardians of that purpose of our planet and of all its people. What to do when life interrupts by Roger Bretherton. For over a decade, I worked as a clinical psychologist in a service treating people who had suffered trauma. I clocked just under 10,000 hours of clinical contact with people who had been through the worst situations imaginable. One thing I learned during that time is that trauma often occurs to us as an interruption. Most of us live our lives to some script, a set of assumptions of how we think things should be, our expectations of what is about to happen next, and trauma shatters those assumptions. Over and over again, people who'd been through trauma told me how their view of the world had been violated. The narrative that defined their life, the story they thought they were in, changed genre unexpectedly. The rom-com became a horror movie. The adventure became a hideous farce. The story, called Walking Home at Night, turned into another one called Being Mugged. Driving to the supermarket became having a crash. A day out at the beach became delivering CPR. All of them illustrate how trauma sends an earthquake through our view of what we thought our lives were, and, if we survive, leaves us in the rubble, 
picking up the pieces. Back in the early days of researching AI systems, one study illustrated the catastrophic effect that even the mildest contradiction of our expectations can have on our entire view of reality. In the quaint old days, when chat GPT was a nightmare for a future generation, an expert system was developed with one simple aim in mind, to identify birds. Such a simple task. The specifications of various species of animal were entered and, by applying a broad array of criteria, the system would indicate whether the said species was a bird or not. But not all its criteria were accurate. One of the rules of thumb the system developed was all birds fly, which worked fine until it was required to categorise a penguin. In the first attempt, it followed its own rules and concluded that penguins were not birds. But when forced by the programmers to categorise a penguin as a bird, the system went into meltdown, attempting to reconcile the contradiction with its own criteria. To resolve the anomaly of the penguin being flightless and yet still being a bird, it concluded that no birds could fly. In one fell swoop, it gave an insight into why it is that trauma occurs to us not just as an event or a set of events, but as an interruption to our whole sense of reality. The nightmares, the flashbacks, the apprehension, irritation and sense of foreboding, the numbing and the terror, all of these are an attempt to make sense of a world that no longer makes sense. Of course, it would be heartless to suggest that the agony of trauma is little more than a glitch in our information processing. Reducing it to a bug in our programming would conveniently trivialise the horrors that can befall human beings. I have no desire to sanitise or diminish the horrors that can haunt us. But trauma is at least this. A hiatus, a shock, an interruption. It is not just trauma that interrupts us. Life specialises in throwing wild cards and anomalies into our path. Just when everything seems to be going swimmingly, when we seem to know what we're doing, when the future seems mapped out before us, the unexpected and the unwelcome occurs. The best way to make God laugh, goes the saying, is to hand him our five-year plan. I'm not sure I have ever spoken to anyone with insight into their own psychological distress who doesn't to some extent, experience their pain as an interruption. The agony that intensifies our fears, depressions and compulsions is often the torturous comparison between who we thought we were and who we have become. Our imaginary ideal self, the person we thought we would be, waltzes away into a future of freedom, light and joy and leaves us behind in doubt and uncertainty. Mental Health Week could in some ways be viewed as an acknowledgement of the interruptions in life. I can only imagine what has interrupted you. I can only hazard a guess at what it is or was that derailed the smooth trajectory of your predicted life. Was it bereavement or ageing? Sickness or betrayal? Disappointment or assault? Redundancy or financial ruin? Whatever it was, it may not be reversible. This is one of the reasons for the burgeoning of mindfulness practices in mental health treatment. We don't just need a technology of change to help us get better. 
We need a technology of acceptance to be able to live with what we cannot change. For me, the lockdown was an interruption from which I have never really recovered. I hesitate to say this because I worry I might be the only person who feels this way. I know it's supposed to be over. We're back to work and acting like the world is rational and predictable again. But the Great Reset just doesn't work for me. My mind is ready to go, but my heart just hasn't got the memo. I've lost the ability to firmly believe that the future can be planned out, that the straight line into the next few years cannot be shattered without warning at any moment. There is a hesitancy in all my plans, an uncertainty in my ambitions. The solid arrow of time is dotted, if not broken. Experts in trauma call it the sense of a foreshortened future. The disruption of our capacity to self-transcend, to bridge ourselves towards the person we may become. Our once lucid image of a better self flickers and grows dim, no longer compelling or believable. And if that's not confession enough, I have another one. One that makes me sound like a rehab resident in a young adult drama. In the midst of the lockdown craziness, I was forced to slowly and reluctantly uncover a gift. Like a treasure buried in a field or a priceless pearl concealed among the worthless tat of a car boot sale. Something so crashingly obvious and cringeworthily twee that I can hardly bear to say it out loud. Many of my plans and ambitions were imaginary, just plain illusion. I was no happier achieving them than I was pursuing them. But I started to glimpse that if I could overcome the grief of losing them, I would be better off without them. If I could put words to it, I would say that I came to a deeper appreciation of grace. It's not a bad thing just to be. We can be so busy trying to become something that we fail to notice that we were before we even began. This has now become a daily contemplative practice for me. I call it being present to the presence in the present. Somehow, I came to a deep inner settlement that I no longer needed to work to justify my existence, but could just work out of the present moment in which my existence was already justified. I came to accept acceptance. Millions of Ukrainians on the move set off an aid revolution by Simona de Vicence. In the last few months of the war, TV news showed the pictures we have come to expect of civilians caught up in conflict. Rapid evacuations, temporary shelters and soup kitchens as millions left their homes for safety. Donations poured in from around the world to pay for this response. Christian Aid was at the heart of this by channeling donations to our Ukraine partners, such as Hungarian Interchurch Aid, HIA, and Hex Eper of the Swiss-German Church. Nothing was easy in those early frantic weeks, but these long-established international charities already working in Ukraine had the contacts and legal permits to scale up their support for those on the move. Months later, 
Those donations are still helping and are paying for different kinds of help as the needs of displaced people evolve. Christian Aid has now made its own direct links to Ukrainian national charity organisations like the Alliance for Public Health, APH. It's an umbrella organisation supporting even smaller partners on the ground and through them, Christian Aid has pioneered and applied a community-led way of working. It involves displaced people deciding for themselves their own priorities for the kind of support they need. In short, international charities must do more listening and less telling. The advantages of this approach, known as survivor and community-led response, or SCLR, are remarkable. Instead of large impersonal and distant support, agencies are going down to the micro-level of organisation, such as church groups, village councils and school parents. These small community-level groups know much better their urban or rural needs. For example, Christian Aid small grants of a few hundred pounds for APH and heritage organisations in Odessa bought playground equipment for a children's centre and a generator to draw water from a well in a recently liberated village. Instead of relying on big blobs of non-transparent funding sloshing around vulnerable to fraud and waste, small groups of individuals are much more accountable to each other. Although no system is perfect, locals will know if the cash has been spent because the playground equipment or generator are there or they're not. It's not just about receiving aid. The process itself brings people together by repurposing existing civil society groups or supporting new ones where Ukrainians have joined up to help those who have left occupied regions. To succeed, local people need to collaborate on what they want, how to do it and who to involve. It breeds community cohesion, empowerment and self-help, especially among women having to operate without their partners. One micro-grant provided by Christian Aid to a local kindergarten was used to pay skilled locals to build an internal staircase to a kindergarten bomb shelter. The SCLR concept has been evolving since it was first used after the Haiti earthquake, but the scale of the war in Ukraine has supercharged its application because it can be replicated easily by Christian Aid's network of faith and non-faith Ukrainian partners across the country. It's also being enthusiastically adopted by Christian Aid's bigger partners like HIA and HEX. They too can see the advantages of moving beyond traditional humanitarian support. Christian Aid believes this community-led approach is a message of hope for the future as Ukraine moves away from its post-Soviet past. It's a model for civil society after the war where local people are entrusted and empowered to decide their own futures. It's also a model that we'd like to see more aid agencies copy in other global crises. Who knows, that in an age of government and institutional distrust, it might even be an approach that could be adapted to revitalize grassroots democracy in the UK. Beyond Bollywood, How Indian Cinema Depicts Christians, by Shah. 
Listeners, before I start reading this article, I want to say that I have tried to research the correct pronunciations of names and other words, but I still may get some of them wrong, and for this I entirely apologise. For many people, Christianity and India appear as two distinct identities, with Christianity being as foreign to India as India is to Christianity. They are surprised to learn that indigenous Christians have maintained a continual existence in India since the time of the Apostles, and that for centuries Christianity has played a tremendous yet under-recognised role in shaping India's artistic and intellectual history. Examples of this include the vast collection of Christian artworks produced by Hindu and Muslim court artists in the Mughal Empire and the synthesis of Christian social teaching and Gandhi's political and philosophical views into a field now known as Gandhian economics, initially developed by the Indian Christian A.C. Kumarapa, who was an economist and activist for Indian independence. This centuries-old interaction between Christianity and broader Indian society continues into the present day, with Indian cinema being a major arena for this. Despite its enormity and tremendous success across the global south, the attitude of many Westerners towards Indian movies lies somewhere between apathy and condescension, with the industry often erroneously perceived as a homogenous genre defined by three-hour runtimes, over-the-top dance routines, syrupy dialogue, melodramatic acting and campy fight scenes. These stereotypes mask the sheer diversity of Indian cinema, which since its inception more than a century ago, has sought to depict the diversity of India and explore a vast array of ideas, including Christian themes and ideals, through creative storytelling. In many cases, these films defy clear-cut genres. We typically imagine a Christian film as possessing an explicitly religious message which it aims to impart on an exclusively Christian audience. These films exist in India but coexist with a parallel stream of movies featuring authentically Christian characters and themes targeting a primarily non-Christian audience where the aim is to illustrate Christian ideals to an unfamiliar audience. This creates a sense of subtlety in the film's messaging that can be hard to find in many Western Christian films. The goal of this article is to introduce listeners to the relatively unknown world of contemporary Indian Christian cinema by highlighting five films which depict the lives of Indian Christians and explore the challenge of living by Christian ideals in a chaotic world where right and wrong are not so clear-cut. For context, the term Indian cinema refers to all cinema produced in India and encompasses films made in over two dozen languages. Bollywood is a nickname given to India's Hindi language film industry, which coexists alongside several other competing linguistic industries. For example, the 2022 film RRR, which won Best Song for the musical number Natu Natu, at the 2023 Oscars, is a Telugu language film. This makes it an Indian movie, but not a Bollywood movie. Kutram Kadital is an independent Tamil language film, which serves as a thought-provoking meditation on the complexities of morality, guilt and blame in an era where the public discourse is dominated by social media and 24-7 news cycles. 
directed by Brahma, a newcomer director, and starring newcomer Radhika Prasida, the film received significant film festival attention, going on to receive several awards, including the 2014 National Film Award for Best Feature Film in Tamil. Merlin, a schoolteacher, administers corporal punishment, a practice that remains relatively common and accepted in India, on a student with an undiagnosed health condition. Though the actual punishment itself, a single slap on the cheek, was relatively harmless, causes the child to fall into a coma. The accident quickly erupts into a full-on media circus, with Merlin being advised by her school's administration to go into hiding until the situation calms down. All the while, Merlin must come to terms with the range of emotions. Overcome by tremendous guilt and desperation for redemption, she is also keen to avoid falling into the crosshairs of the media who have whipped up the incident with outrageously false allegations. It's an interesting exploration of how people's personal notions of right and wrong must be reconciled with society's own judgment, regardless of how accurate or fair that assessment is. Lynn does feel remorse for her actions, but her assessment of the situation differs drastically from the sensationalist condemnations she was dealt from the media. Ultimately, Merlin realises that the path to forgiveness lies not with the media-driven public perception of her, but her own relationship with her victim and his grieving mother. Ave Maria is a 2018 Malayalam language film, not to be confused with the 2015 Palestinian short film with the same name. Set in Velankani, a famous Roman Catholic pilgrimage site in South India, which attracts millions of pilgrims annually, the film follows the unlikely friendship of two very different people. Maria Gomez, a young woman and devout Catholic from a well-off background, is now contemplating an abortion due to exceptional and highly unique circumstances. Believing it to be a sin, she decides to preemptively seek forgiveness and atone for the planned abortion by making a pilgrimage trip to Catholic shrines of Valencani where she also plans to use her money to help transform the lives of a select few individuals in poverty or crisis. To do this, she enlists the help of Rex, a taxi driver and lapsed Christian, and the two set off to achieve Maria's plan for atonement, which goes disastrously and forces Maria to re-evaluate her faith more closely. At its core, the film is an exploration on whether you can offset the harm of one sin as Maria believes abortion is a sin, even though she intends to have one, by committing good deeds elsewhere. Theologians will likely have a lot to say on this topic, but the movie is more interested in the perspective of the devout but theologically uninformed believer. Her objective is further complicated by the messy reality of life. In one instance, Maria makes a sizable donation to a charitable old age home in exchange for housing an elderly beggar who has spent years in the streets of Elancani. She is dumbfounded when she discovers the elderly woman back on the streets a little while later. When questioned, the old lady apologetically confesses that after years on the street, she simply cannot adjust to the regimented life of the old age home. Maria is now unsure as to whether this development undoes her previous good deed. Kunju Daivam is a 2018 Malayalam language children's film. 
The film begins with a young boy named Oise Pachan, who believes his prayers to postpone a maths exam by any means necessary led to the death of his beloved grandfather, whose demise gets him pulled out of class right before the math exam begins. Upset by this, the boy takes to reading Bible scripture, which leads him down the path of trying to find a kidney donor for a terminally ill neighbour, something most would agree is beyond the capacity of a young child. Along the way, he eventually learns to make peace with his previous conviction that he was responsible for his grandfather's sudden demise. The film is an interesting exploration of the parable of the Good Samaritan, as understood by an innocent child. We all agree it's good to help others. But society has also conditioned us to believe that there are unspoken practical limits to helping others. Oise Pachan encounters this time and again in his quest, which the adults in his life look upon with admiration that turns to irritation when he refuses to give up. In one scene, a priest, losing patience with his antics, admonishes the boy's fixation on finding a kidney donor and directs him to more age-appropriate concerns like doing well in school. Ultimately, Oise Pachan's childlike dedication forces us to reconsider our own attitude towards charity and helping others. The Sky is Pink is a 2019 Hindi-language film retelling the love story between a married couple from the perspective of their daughter who is living with terminal pulmonary fibrosis and a severe immunodeficiency. The film is based on the true story of Aisha Chowdhury, 1996-2015, whose memoir My Little Epiphanies was released just one day before her death. The film is a depiction of the struggles that families and children living with severe chronic illnesses and also a meditation on the inherent value of human life, even in the face of severe illness and hardship. These beliefs are most strongly held by Aisha's mother, Aditi, whose conversion to Christianity allowed her to embrace the perspective that all human life is inherently valuable. This allows Aditi to come to terms with Aisha's health issues and the death of a previous child who died shortly after birth. Aisha herself credits this belief as being the reason for her own existence. I was also personally impressed by the decision of the director, Shonali Bose, to depict Aisha's mother's conversion to Christianity and how these Christian beliefs impacted her parenting and perspective on life. Religious conversions, particularly to Christianity, had always been a contentious topic in India. At the time of this movie's release, the issue had transformed into an all-out moral panic, with conspiracy theories claiming foreign-funded churches had converted hundreds of millions with the intent of fueling social discord and separatist violence. Bose isn't Christian, and The Sky is Pink was never intended to be a Christian film. Bose was likely aware that by including the Christian aspect of this true story in her film, she was opening herself up to the possibility of public outrage, boycotts and even political censorship, which have all grown increasingly common since India's post-2010 majoritarian term. Despite these risks, she opted to incorporate Aditi's Christian beliefs into the film, which, aside from ensuring the film's authenticity, introduced many non-Christian viewers to an alternative perspective on Christian conversion. Exploration of religious violence and interreligious harmony 
are nothing new to Indian cinema. Even Western films set in India, like the 2008 British blockbuster Slumdog Millionaire, featured depictions of the brutal violence that interreligious riots periodically unleash. But the majority of these films tend to focus solely on the experiences of Hindus and Muslims during these riots. The 2004 Hindi-language film Kaya Taran takes an alternative approach. Set in a Catholic convent during the 1984 anti-Sikh riots, which led to the deaths of hundreds of innocent Sikhs at the hands of rioters, seeking revenge over the assassination of the then Prime Minister Indira Gandhi by her Sikh bodyguards, follows the lives of a group of nuns who offer shelter to a Sikh woman and her eight-year-old son seeking refuge from the riots and killings outside. The film explores the growing relationship between the Sikh mother, her son Jaggi, and the nuns who especially grow to adore Jaggi, and the shared sense of vulnerability they all face as religious minorities in a country where discriminatory violence is a very real threat. This is especially true for those who were outward identifiers of their faith. For the nuns, it's their religious habits, and for Jaggi, it's his long uncut hair and turban, which the nuns initially cut to conceal his Sikh identity. The film concludes with a nun helping the young boy retie his turban, the boy no longer willing to hide his religious identity in the face of majoritarian intimidation and discrimination. His convictions serve as an inspiration for the viewers, many of whom have never experienced a situation where we were made to choose between our religious beliefs and our personal safety. In this article, we have explored five Indian movies and their engagement with Christian themes. However, I should also mention that not all Indian cinema's depiction of Indian Christians have been positive ones. For example, the long-standing trend of depicting Indian Christian women as hypersexual hedonists, whose behaviour is usually contrasted negatively against a more virtuous Hindu woman. There is also the tendency to reverse exoticize Indian Christian society as white people in brown bodies for an audience that has had little personal contact with Indian Christians and tends to view the religion as a foreign import. One trope is to have Indian Christian characters speaking Indian languages in an inexplicably foreign-sounding accent, despite having grown up entirely within India. But in an era where the Indian Christian community finds itself increasingly maligned in the public discourse, movies like the one discussed here can play an important role in helping to present an alternative narrative, one rooted in the authentic, diverse experiences of Indian Christians themselves. The Indian audience is unique for its willingness to watch movies that present deeply spiritual messages from faith traditions which they themselves do not adhere to, work which speaks to the inherently multicultural nature of Indian society, which has always consisted of diverse communities living side by side one another. You've been listening to Seen and Unseen Aloud. In these early episodes, it makes a huge difference if you can rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening, and it helps others to discover the show too. Thank you. You can also find more episodes, podcasts and articles at seenandunseen.com.